0: Cliffcentral.com.
1: Right, good morning. And if you've just joined us, welcome to the Burning Platform, which is our opportunity to look at some of the big stories that are going on in the world, some of the big stories that affect us here in South Africa, and the things that everybody is talking about uh, current affairs, news, big developments, um, politics all of that stuff, and a whole lot more. I'm joined, as always, by Pumi Mashicho, and we will be joined this morning by Nicole Fritz, who I'm delighted to welcome to the show. Nicole Fritz is the Executive Director of the Helen Suzman Foundation. She has been since January of this year. She was a Business Day columnist before that and has served in a number of prominent civil society organizations over her career, including being the Executive Director of Freedom Under Law, who we've mentioned so many times on this show, so it 's a, a travesty actually we're only speaking to Nicole now for the first time because freedom under law has done some incredible and meaningful and important and essential work in um maintaining you know the 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 kind of <laughs> the 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 civil part of society the 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 fact that In so many ways, we depend on government and sometimes someone has to hold government to account. Freedom under law is a massively important part and a component of uh, a free and, uh, and, and hopefully functional liberal democracy like South Africa. And we certainly can give them credit for having done much to foster and forward the cause of a society that understands the rule of law, a society that tries to make things a little more... Free, a little more sensible, a little more fair um, in a country where there's so little of that that's going on. So we're thrilled to have her here this morning. She's also been executive director of the South African Litigation Centre. So we got lots to talk to Nicole about. Uh, Pumi's here, and Nicole, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to the show. I'm I'm really really sorry it's taken us so very long to get you on. As I said in the introduction, but I'm delighted to have you with us this morning.
2: No, thank you. Thank you so much for that incredibly generous introduction. It's very nice to be here. Thank you.
1: Well, um, it was Pumi who actually um, sent your name to the producers and said we have no excuse to not have Nicole on after all this time. And really, I did mean that you've, you, you've come up, if not by name, then certainly by the organization's names that you've headed. Um, the Helen Sisman Foundation has done tremendous work even long before you joined them. They continue to. Um, but but Freedom Under Law, just tell people a little bit for those who don't know and who for whom my introduction was perhaps – scant uh give them some idea of of what freedom under law has been up to and also what the the helen sisman foundation's mandate is
2: sure so just to to start off with and to tell you a little bit about freedom freedom under law and um that was a terrifically generous introduction um and i wish i could take credit for the incredible work that um that freedom under law has done um but i think you know real tribute should be paid um to Judge Johan Krichler, who was one of the first constitutional court judges uh, appointed um, by uh, former President Nelson Mandela to sit on that court. Um, Judge Johan Krichler is the chair of of Freedom Under Law. And um, and it was set up uh, more than a decade ago. I think really uh, one of the uh, reasons for it being uh, put together and the idea is to to defend rule of law and constitutionalism in South Africa um was was what happened um, in respect of uh you know still current uh, western Cape judge president uh, John flope, who had made an overture to two uh, then uh, sitting constitutional court judges sought to to influence them to essentially render judgment in favor <laughs> of um, then he it was expected that he would be president jacob zuma um, he wasn't yet. Um they a complaint was enlarged by the constitutional court, all the judges of the constitutional court against this attempt to improperly influence the highest court. And I mean, it's just hard to imagine a more terrifying sort of prospect of sort of attack on the independence of courts then then a judge president of so busy uh, so prominent a division as the western cape division making an approach on, on judges in the highest court of the land and asking them to essentially render a decision in favor of a man that was expected to be the the president and then subsequently was the president of south africa and that complaint was uh, put before the judicial service commission and initially the judicial service commission and it should be said, Judge President Clope put in a counter-complaint against the judges of the Constitutional Court, saying that they had sort of besmirched his reputation. Um, <laughs> but both those, both those complaints were then dismissed on the part of the Judicial Service Commission. They said, no, there's, um, we're not going to proceed with this. And it was on the back of freedom of, under law then going to court and asking for a review and set aside of the decision of the Judicial Service Commission's um, decision to, do, to, to set those, to not proceed with that. Uh, With that disciplinary process that we saw this, you know, this process that was then reinstituted, but at an agonizingly slow pace so that it was only last year that the judicial conduct tribunal says, yes, in fact, Judge President John Clopper is guilty Mm -hmm. of gross judicial misconduct and should be impeached. Um, And that was upheld by the JSC finally. Um, but we now know that there are being all sorts of attempts to, um, uh, to, to appeal that decision that has, um, uh, to appeal, uh, to, to attempt to interdict any suspension of him sort of pending the finalization of this matter. So then, uh, you know, essentially 15 years later, and we still don't see any final conclusion to this matter. But I have to say, if it hadn't been for, for Freedom Under Law, for its board, and for particularly, um, for judge crickler's efforts and i think Mm -hmm. what needs to be recognized by the public is that judge crickler could very well have decided that actually you know he was going to enjoy his retirement he had made an enormous contribution to south africa as it was he had sat on the constitutional court rendered some of our most significant jurisprudence in this country yes um but in fact what he decided in his retirement is to to use that to make another enormous contribution to south africa and so i would say that you know huge tribute needs to be paid to judge kukla i am full of admiration for him and you know have such fondness for him so that's a bit long but that's freedom under law and that's only one matter that it took but <laughs> there was a matter which that's took 15 years and we're still not at, the, no, end the, amazing, at the end of it but,
1: but thank god you guys pursued it when you when you were there and, and they continued to fight this fight because really it seems to me kind of ridiculous that uh, Judge John Lopez is still there, despite everything that's been that 's been brought to bear in, in trying to get him out of out of his position it 's unbelievable. It shows you that some some people, especially in the judiciary, can really stick around uh, despite every attempt to 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 break them loose. Tell us a little bit about the mm-hmm. Helen and Sussman Foundation too, and then we can move into some current affairs and your comments and some of the things that are going on because I think those are important too.
2: Um, And thank you. I mean, the Helen Sisman Foundation uh, obviously was a a foundation that um, was established to to try and honour the the legacy of of Helen Sisman, who for so many years was kind of a lone voice in the South African parliament uh, during apartheid, uh, when it was a whites-only parliament, seeking to oppose the policies of the the national government. So it was a single woman. They
1: used to call her in parliament the Honourable Member from Nauten. And they were very.
0: They wouldn't even call her by name.
1: They wouldn't even call her by name. Exactly. Yeah, that's quite right. And I mean, she she was, in her time, first of all, to be a woman, and second of all, to have espoused the views that she did, and to stand up for people who were just not being represented at all. I mean, she was uh, unbelievable. She was a she was a With force of nature.
2: Fire in her pen.
1: Yeah. Absolutely.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And it's quite a formidable sort of legacy to obviously try and live up to. I mean, she did. She had members of parliament who and cabinet ministers who would say, you know, I'm, you're very lucky you're not my wife because I would beat you. Um, and and that was the kind of that <laughs> she would, was just would pass for sort of parliamentary decorum um, mm, yeah. in you know, in the house then. Um, so so that was the kind of um, you know that was uh, th- that's the example that's the legacy that we're trying to to live up to, and it's about sort of Protecting, strengthening, um, uh, promoting a, a liberal constitutional democracy in South Africa. So really trying to shore up um, rule of law and constitutionalism. Um, in, in you know, with the with the intention that that would better sort of promote the rights of all South Africans. Right? We know our constitution is is replete with a, a number of of human rights that are protected in the bill of rights to, so to ensure that those are are protected, those are given life and realized. Um, and so that's, that's very much the um, what the mandate of the Helen Sussman foundation is, as you've indicated, I've only taken over at the beginning of, of, of this year. So I haven't been there for, um, for very long. Um, it has done a tremendous amount of work. As I said, it's got, um, you know, this legacy, this uh quite intimidating legacy to to try and promote and uphold um and and yeah we've we've we're doing some exciting work
1: sounds terrific i'm really really pleased that there are ngos like these uh, that are able to do this stuff Um, a lot of people are very nervous about ngos because all over the world you know there's some of them that do tremendous work and there's some of them that are also quite nefarious and get involved in lobbying in ways that are very um Single issue, let's say. Uh, obviously, in, in the case of both of these, I think they've they have got—they've—they've uh, got, they've, they've earned the respect of so many South Africans for standing up for the things which I think we all consider to be really, really integral to um, a, a functional constitutional democracy. Do you agree, Pums?
0: And I think the single issue, the thing about it is that the single issue that they are focused on is really our constitutional democracy. And the constitution... That we have, and we've spoken about this before, is is looked up to all over the world. But it really doesn't mean a damn thing if we can't if we can't defend it in courts, and if it doesn't if it doesn't defend the freedoms of the people of South Africa, you know, and and that for me is why this is one of the these particular NGOs are, are one of those. And just Gareth, I'm going to pivot to a new issue Perfect. that is currently in the Helen Suzman. I mean, we see Helen Sussman Foundation as the friend of the courts in so many, so many court cases that yes. are happening right now and it's always, you know, when they come up it's always a, hmm, what does that really mean, friend of the court? And maybe this is the opportunity, before I ask you about this particular issue, to just tell us a little bit about what that really means when an organization becomes a friend of the court and what they're there to do in the during that court proceeding.
2: Sure, thanks, Promi. Um So, you know, the, the phrase is, is amicus or amici, um, as which, as you say, is, is, is a friend of the court. Um, and the idea is that that you as an organization or even as an individual can make an application um, to to be an an amicus. Uh, and the idea then is that your role is to be a friend of the court. So it is not necessary. You know, it's not to take a specific Position on behalf of any of the parties. So, generally, with a court case, you'll have an applicant and a an respondent, or um, you know, in the criminal case, you'll have the prosecution and the defence. The role of the amicus is not to line up, you know, in the shadows of either of those parties, but to be a, a friend of the court. It doesn't mean that your submissions don't necessarily aren't necessarily going to advance one or other side. But the idea is, I'm here. I'm not necessarily here to litigate this matter. Um, but I'm here to offer submissions to the court that I think will be helpful in its determination of the matter. So we don't think that the the papers that have been put uh, to the court on the part of the applicant or the respondent exhaust what needs to be taken into account when you as the court are considering this matter. So here are some submissions, and we're coming to you, if we're doing this properly, which is, here are some submissions which we think you know, as you make your determinations, you should also take into account because they give you a broader context or another issue, another angle that needs to be considered.
1: Right. Um, Can we look at a couple of stories here? I mean, if there's any place that we need a friend of the court to be able to to bring uh, people to bear for for making terrible decisions that impact really awfully on on the lives of ordinary South Africans. We've seen the new chief justice, um, presiding over these uh, state capture hearings. And we hear lots of really interesting stories about what's been going on behind the scenes over the last 10 to 12 years in South Africa, the the kinds of skullduggery that, that have involved ministers, that have involved um, big business, that have involved uh, consultants, and that have involved just straight-up criminals. Um, some of the people that seem to get by with the least amount of... Uh, what's what's the word, um, the, the least amount of, of kind of public outrage seem to be these big international firms. And I want to talk here in particular about Bain. I want to talk about McKinsey, who've all been named in these reports and who really have been absolutely scurrilous in the way that they have taken advantage of First of all, the corruptibility of our government. Second of all, the ignorance of the ordinary South African. And third of all, the willingness of other businesses and of the South African government to comply with what is it, what, essentially a, an asset stripping and a—I mean, it's—it's it's just a—it's a total theft, a, a pillage, theft, a wholesale theft of this this country's assets and and our tax money um and these companies just carry on doing what they're doing now are we going to take serious steps to prevent them from doing this again or are we just going to open the doors to them and say yes come in your come bring in your consultants draw up plans for state capture and give them to these criminals to enact
2: yeah I mean, I, I couldn't agree more, Gareth. And and I have to say, Bain is one that really makes my blood boil because, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, government and government actors, and we've seen just the kind of wholesale co- corruption that has been exposed through the, the through the Zondo Commission. Obviously, those officials have taken an oath to serve in the public interest, and they, to the extent that they have deviated from that oath, that is really. Um, Horrific and probably the, the the greater crime if you're going to compare these things. But the mm-hmm. fact that these prestigious blue chip international corporates have come here, and in the case of SARS, right, so the South, South African Revenue Service was a kind of model, global model for revenue collection. Um, it was held up around the world um, as as an example to be emulated, and you know it had doubled its revenue collection in you know a, a short number of years. So here it here it is. And Bain comes, and, you know, before even Tomoyani is announced as the new head of SARS, like a year in advance, they they are privy to that information. They are essentially buying influence from this company, Amber Bright, who was close to, to Zuma. So they know that. And they start preparing. I mean, what is essentially a sham restructuring? Because SARS doesn't need restructuring. They, when Tomiani is appointed, they then go in and essentially break SARS. They dismantle it. Yeah. They strip it of its investigative capacity. So not only is there then the shortfall in revenue collection, but but actually there is an acceleration of criminal activity because SARS's investigative capacities are then broken. Um, and so you have this hollowed out um, organization organization which is then sort of essentially handed back to South Africa millions and millions are are charged in, in 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 fees um you know to the benefit to the benefit of Bain and what's not understood is that in a developing constitution such as ourselves right if we are to realize on the promises of the, of of the constitution and particularly socioeconomic rights so rights to access health healthcare housing education all that de- depends really largely on our revenue collection you you incapacitate SARS and you essentially right. break our constitutional democracy. And this is what Bain does. And then Bain says, you know, initially, it, it's kind of denied, oh, we've done nothing wrong. These were kind of maybe, you know, kind of rogue apples in South Africa. But actually, globally, we didn't know, which is nonsense, actually, because the global partners were absolutely integrated into the South African operations. And then they're like, oh, sorry, he, you know, hear your feedback. But of course, if you are going to make good on the harm, they need to, Taken to account, that South Africa basically lost billions in revenue collection as a result of Bain's activities at SARS, and really there has to be there has to be action taken. Ideally, um, at the hands of our authorities. It cannot be that Bain receives its stiffest, pe- stiffest penalties from the likes of the UK government. But you have to applaud what the UK government has just done. I mean, Jacob Rees-Mogg announcing. That there's a three year ban on Bain, that it will not be receiving any um, work from the cabinet office for those three years. And that's as a result of the efforts of Lord Peter Hain and Athel Williams, the whistleblower who, you know, has left South Africa because uh, he has faced uh, such danger.
1: Yeah, we had him on the show not so long ago. Exactly. And and, I do, Um, I do think. And,
2: you know, we, we are, I mean, I think lots of, a number of civil society organizations are looking at other, um, Foreign jurisdictions, which Mm. have legal frameworks, which might allow us to go after Bain, Um, for instance, in the United States and the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, um, Bain is headquartered there. But as I said, really, we need to see action taken against these these corporates here in South Africa, because the harm has been most acutely felt here. Mm -hmm.
1: Couldn't agree more. And it just it drives me crazy that we continue to rely on on these companies and, and their reputations don't seem to be much tarnished by their really, really bad acting. In a place like South Africa, they, they don't seem to be penalized for it internationally, except in this very rare case uh, that you've just mentioned in the UK. All right, so we'll do what we can there. Uh, let's just talk for a minute about something else that's quite controversial is this basic income grant, um, because we spoke a lot about this during the pandemic. Obviously, we realized people were stretched. There was there was a, a huge amount of urgency we now see that they want to take that basic income grant up. They want to double it. They want to, some people are complaining that that's not even enough. We need to give people a thousand rand a month as a basic income grant. Of course, all this money has to come from somewhere. Um, so it's all good and well. And even for NGOs to start saying, well, you must make it this much when we just don't have that much money. And you talked about SARS just a moment ago. I mean, South Africans are stretched to the point where even the commissioner of SARS, Edward Kisvet, is saying that there is a high likelihood that if they tinker too much with tax, um, that, that there may be some kind of a tax revolt. That already so many people who have lots and lots of money have sent it all overseas. And all you'll be doing is punishing hard working middle class South Africans if tax is fiddled with. So where is this money to come from? And it's all good and well to talk about this. But is it even a practical uh, possibility in a place like this?
2: Gareth, I, I, you know, I, I recognize that and I think that there's been lots of discussion and obviously, you know, um, very reputable, respectable entities are coming out and they're saying, I mean, Business Unity South Africa has just put out a report and they're saying look, it really doesn't seem uh, affordable for us, but you know, if we are going to do it, here's um, h- how one might do it and it's, you know, kind of a little bit of tinkering with that and personal income tax. But I have to say, I mean, the, the fact is we're talking at the moment, it's it's 350 Rand, right? That's um, an what they have done is increase the eligibility. So and allow a larger number of South Africans to qualify for this 350 50 rand. Essentially, in order to qualify, you um, can't be earning more than the food poverty line, which is around, I think, 695 rand. Um, but, but to get a grant of 350 rand, when we're talking that the food poverty line is around 695 means that, you know, if you are Earning nothing, which you know, large numbers of those recipients are, you're not you're not getting enough to actually feed, your, feed yourself. Or um, and and we're hearing these terrible stories, devastating stories about you know children having to eat sand essentially in the Eastern Cape and KwaZulu Natal because they are are so starving. We know what happened in July last year, and it's true that that was absolutely kind of orchestrated and manipulated by political actors. Hmm. But we also have a desperate population, right? Um, and I think, for all sorts of reasons, um, and if we take seriously our constitutional commitments, it, it, it must it must make us all ill to think of the huge number of kind of hunger and poverty in this country. And we talk about the social compact. I mean, and 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 how we might sort of ensure that there is greater sort of social unity and and, and cohesion. And the Institute for Economic Justice is coming out. I mean, it's done some sort of modelling, and some of those proposals are really incredibly interesting. Um so they're talking about what it would, might mean to impose a 1% tax hike on the one the the wealthiest 1% of South Africans and how much that would um that would raise. And and it might, you know one might say oh well you know the wealthy are already taxed hard. Um but but if you looked at if you if you look at that and this idea that I mean if if one could design a mechanism where actually the wealthiest in South Africa 1% were supporting those who are in direst poverty um so that rather than sitting on these two extreme ends one was actually sort of closing the circle um and and what that might allow like if we had a reliable social security net what that might allow in terms of us reimagining other things in in our economy like uh labor law um and Disinvestment policies—if people understand, you know, acutely, because they're on, the, you know, they're getting their, their their grants are funded by um, those who have this capital. What that what that might mean to induce positive policies against disinvestment in South Africa. And so, it's not—I'm not an economist, I, I, you know—I don't have the answer, but I really would hope that we're having sitting down and having imaginative um, conversations about how we might make this a reality, because I think that the, the You know, we have to recognize that that it's not only unconscionable that people are living in this type of poverty and hunger, but but, but, but that actually it makes this country unsustainable.
1: Well, shouldn't we, first of all, figure out how we can stop uh, bad actors within the government from pilfering? huge quantities of this money before we place an additional burden on taxpayers. I mean, a lot of people in this country will say, well, I'm already supporting some 16 to 20 people that I don't know, that I didn't make, that I'm not actually responsible for with my tax money. And for the ordinary tax-paying South African, who's paying not only the ordinary taxes, which everyone pays, but also a quite hefty income tax, capital gains tax, business tax, all of these things, starting to make it very, very difficult for people to operate. And I hate to say it, but it does sound a bit Bernie Sanders to be talking about the top 1% and how if we've got the, if we, if we tax the top 1%, we can get the money to help the poorest of the poor. And it never works that way. There's very, very little evidence that that stuff ever trickles down to the people who actually need it. It gets stolen by bureaucrats.
2: Well, I, I think that I mean I, you know, I don't disagree with that characterization of South Africa. I also think, I mean, one of one of the things is nobody's saying this is a silver bullet, right? I mean, this idea that this is going to sort of take us, you know, and suddenly we'll be a happy, stable, secure society is nonsense. That you know, this type of conversation and discussion also has to go alongside all sorts of other policies about, you know directed at economic growth and job creation. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's not about it being in, 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 in isolation. But I do think that we have to recognize, right, that we are an anomalous society in the sense that, uh, one, we are the most unequal in, in the world, right? And even after imposition of our fiscal system, so our tax system, which is redistributive, even after that, we're still more unequal. Than the than other countries in, in the world prior to a kind of fiscal redis prior to the, them being being taxed, and so you know it can't be oh well, it's not worked anywhere else. I mean, we have to look at a solution well, that is specific to South Africa. but it does, isn't it?
1: It does become ideological, and and uh, it becomes almost like religious. Uh, this idea of we've got to address inequality, and we see governments all over the world trying to do this. And failing because it requires social engineering of the kind that has led to nothing but ugliness and devastation where it's been employed. And and I, I, I as much as I understand that people are upset by, and rightly so, unfairness, inequality, inequity, wherever they see it, nobody can help feeling sorry for people who have absolutely nothing, unless you're a complete psychopath. And nobody can help thinking, well, it seems that completely inappropriate that someone should have eight houses and 16 cars where you know other people in the country have nothing to eat that night. But this this obsession with inequality and I mean the Gini coefficient, which I think you tangentially referred to there, is is the measure by which all of this is calculated. Um, there are obviously uh, lots of poor people and lots of rich people in every part of the world. And these arbitrary borders that we've drawn around our countries are a very bad way to formulate where and when and how people are adjudicated to be rich and poor. I mean, you could look at the Eastern Cape, for example, and you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who's living uh, you know, a, a, a billionaire lifestyle over there. You could look in Gauteng, you'd probably find a few more. But this obsession with the extreme rich and the extreme poor kind of leaves all the people in the middle who are keeping the country going sitting with nothing to talk about because... They're just victim of whatever tax system is employed if they're at the top, or they're victim of whatever government inability, incapability of, of distributing that, that tax. Um, they, they fall victim to that, on the other hand. It just doesn't seem to work.
0: But also, I don't think it's that imaginative. I mean, when the, the conversations about the basic income grant – and not very different to the conversations that were had all those many years ago by the squeeze squeeze of this world. And what what failed, I think, in that system, and there's no way that we can look back and say, well, maybe the initial grant system did lift a lot of people out of poverty and did a kind of grease the wheels for a lot of individuals to be able to move out of their poverty but what we never had is we never had a system that says how do we take off these people from this this reliability on this grant right and so if you don't have an exit system on the other side is you simply just have lots and lots of people coming into the grant system and Standing in the queue for grants and never in any way on the other side saying, how do we get people out of the grant system? Hmm. And I think one of the the biggest flaws of the the basic income grant conversation that we are having is really a conversation that is unimaginative in that it says on the one side, we're going to tax these people so that we can redistribute the tax on this side. But that's not very imaginative. There are many other ways in which to, to look at how do we lift people out of poverty? How do we move people out of the environment that they're in? And what does that look like? The reality is that we don't have the thinking, right? We don't have, and we spoke about thinking in, in the last hour, we were speaking about thinking and, and the research and the information that needs to go. We don't have the people. We don't have the people in Kiesbeta to say how do we fix SARS from where it is. We don't have the people in our ministerial positions to fix it because they only see one lens, and their lens is an old lens with which they are looking at all of these things. And this is why we keep getting stuck in this this malaise that we are in. Yeah. That's, that's just my thing about the basic income grants. I think we're stuck with old thinking. It's not new. It's not imaginative and it's not no. going to solve our problems.
2: I, I would only, I mean, I would say, as as I'd said, look, I mean, nobody, and certainly it's not the position of the foundation that this happen in isolation, mm-hmm. right? It has to go alongside, uh, you know, job creation, uh, stimulation of the economy, I mean, we're talking about a grant at the moment of 350 rand, right? I mean, it doesn't even meet the food poverty line. It's not as if it's you know that money. And the studies have been done. This is not a disincentive to actually join the job market if there is a job available to you. But but the fact is, and I mean, I, I know it might be boring, but but the but the fact that the, the reality of South Africa is that there are children who are going to to, to bed malnourished there are adults who are going to bed without food in their stomach and the fact is that if we want a sustainable south africa we are going to have to address that and we're going to have to show that the constitution actually takes um seriously the reality of those well, individuals lives
1: have we um, ever- and so it's not it's not go ahead
2: no, no. Just that, that, you know, the idea is that this is not something that is there in perpetuity. It's not something in place of job creation and economic stimulation policies, but it's there as a basic underlying social security net, which is essentially promised in our constitution in terms of social assistance to those who need it.
1: Well, I mean, we saw in America, and it's the most obvious example I can draw from recent history. During COVID, we saw the government literally writing checks to Americans of all kinds, and particularly poor Americans. And those those amounts were not insignificant. They were high-level grants. And government didn't say you could do this or that or the other with your money. They, they just gave you the money. And it was paid into people's bank accounts, and it led to people sitting at home, quitting their jobs, and doing less. And that's obviously if you give them enough. If you give them too little, it does absolutely bugger all, because they're unable to actually fight the poverty which is keeping them... in its, in its tight clutches, and it makes it very, very difficult for those people to make themselves independent of government, even for that 350 rand. Plus, I think it's just so undignified that our government thinks it's something to boast about, that we have 16 or 17 million people on 350 rand a day. I think that's appalling. I think that that is it's it's a it's a dereliction of duty of the highest order by government that they've mismanaged the economy to the degree that that many people are dependent on that little money and consider it and the government considers it an achievement it's outrageous sure. i mean i think
2: again uh, there's much to agree with there I mean but I mean you know you see what the US economy is doing the job creation numbers right I mean so that there was a helping hand created and there has been significant sort of economic growth and job creation and um in, in, in recent months um in the United states I think that you are right and also just to, huge to, amounts to of infl- again, there's also
1: huge amounts of inflation that's been created and that is going to affect absolutely everybody especially the poor
0: everybody
1: yeah. Well, that's um, what happens when governments just print money and they hand it out to people. It's not, it's not a way to guarantee any kind of long-term prosperity for anyone. You know this whole mona- what do they call not, it modern, not, no. modern not- monetary theory? I mean, this is if anything is disproven, modern monetary theory. It is precisely this. Am I right? I mean, even from your days at the Business Day, when this was—you remember when um, what was the name? Piketty, Thomas Piketty came out here to South Africa, and he was regaled as some kind of financial genius, and his ideas were were considered to have been revolutionary and thoughtful, and 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 uh, and academics all over the place were were in high praise of of his ideas, if anything has proven that modern monetary theory is an absolute disaster, it has to be that Janet Yellen herself the other day said, the woman who was first of all in charge of the Fed and was printing money and who's now acknowledged that she just doesn't understand inflation, those are her exact words, I didn't understand. This is the kind of the level (laughs) of, of hypocrisy and stupidity that we get at the high end of the bureaucracy. If, if modern monetary theory needed an example in which to completely disabuse itself of the notion that anything in there is sensible, then this is it. And America is teaching itself and the world a hard lesson.
2: Yeah. But, but we, yes. And again, though, I mean, the, the idea of making a, a grant – Available to South Africans does not require a monetary policy, which is essentially about printing money, right? And so no it's shot. about a discussion about the ways <laughs> in which we do that in a way that is financially and economically sustainable, sustainable for our, for our country. And so I do think again, I mean, sometimes this, this debate breaks down into these extremes. Um, and what we are, you know, what we are suggesting is that there needs to be a conversation because, because in order to give people the dignity of jobs, and I agree with you, that is, You've got to ensure that they survive, right? And that they have food to put in their mouths. And for many, many South Africans right now, the reality is the only way that they do that is by getting a grant. And so it's yeah. not so, it's not for a life terrible. Life, I want to ask, it,
0: terrible.
2: I wanna ask a a question that that's gonna shift
0: this conversation slightly. So, you know, just speaking of the areas in which people can participate in the economy. One of the things that we've seen, and I I saw that the Helen Suzman Foundation was one of the signatories to a open letter to the president in Johannesburg, for those of you who may not have seen that, in Johannesburg very recently, there was an issue with permits and street vendors and the MMC for economic development. Mm-hmm. And which, you know, because there is this growing movement that, that seems to to see individuals in particular parts of our economy either as foreign and therefore illegal and therefore yeah. taking jobs mm-hmm. from South Africans. And there was this issue in in Johannesburg recently with Seri, right? That's what they're mm-hmm. called. Seri. which which has led to an enormous outcry even from civil society groups about the level of freedoms that South Africans in those parts of the economy of South Africa are able to operate because of being victimized by people who want to be our government. What is your view on that little
2: Mm. exercise as
0: we've seen it over the past couple of uh, weeks unfolding?
2: Obviously, I mean, one is is just that, you know, again, this is just such irresponsible action on the part of our government to to attack um, civil society and to attack Syria in the way in which uh, in which was done, um, you know, for for work that they were doing uh, in respect of those um, street traders and, and ensuring that they're. Um, Positions were protected by law. But it speaks to, I mean, that letter also mentions the, the, um, attacks that the Helen Sussman Foundation received from the Minister, um, of Home Affairs, Aaron Motsoledi. And this is in respect of a case that we're bringing, um, challenging the termination of the Zimbabwe exemption permits. Right. Um, in respect of that, that case, um, Minister Motsoledi has, uh, you know, taken issue with us um, for taking his department to court, has called us part of a dictatorship of NGOs. Um, <laughs> it was really kind of incendiary language. But this is a case which, which relates to around 178,000 uh, Zimbabwean nationals who have lived in this country perfectly lawfully for well over a decade as part of this um, special dispensation regime, which has involved a kind of rollover of several permits. Um, The most recent being the Zimbabwe exemption permit. And in November last year, essentially, cabinet made a decision. It was announced that that um, permit would be terminating at the end of December 2021 and that there would be a a grace period given um, allowing permit holders essentially to transfer to other forms of visas or permit status or to apply for a waiver. Um, But by the December uh, 2022, um, they would have to have done so, or they would be illegal in South Africa. They would have to return to Zimbabwe. Um, what they then found out is, in fact, that there was no legal basis to grant a grace period. So they've actually extended the permit for, for the year, and, and um, it is now terminating in December 2022. But it essentially means that um, these 178,000 Zimbabwean nationals who, as I said, have been here lawfully, scrupulously observing the law, for well over a decade have founded families, careers, homes here must put, are put to a, this invidious choice, right? Because it actually is an illusory, um, option to suggest that they can trans, um, migrate to other visas. They're simply not available. So they will have to stay here as illegals or they will return to Zimbabwe, which is essentially unchanged from the country that they fled more than a decade ago. Um, and what unfortunately this has led to, and again, I think, you know, irresponsible desperate political actors have been keen to sort of um inflame this um and inflame the kind of rhetoric against foreigners um and so there has been a huge kind of response uh, against this this action from from those like put south africa first and operation Dudula. and And this does have a, you know, kind
0: of conflates with what we were speaking about with freedom under law and what our constitution allows. And where our constitution is and now essentially kind of putting in jeopardy where we have politicians who quite blatantly are willing to break the tenets of our constitution simply because it makes them popular on the ground.
1: I yeah, I have I have enormous sympathy for people who are from foreign countries and who receive no protection from our own you know uh criminal justice system because really there's just nowhere for them to go if you know their shop is just shut down by the police if members of a community take uh, action and and take uh, the law into their own hands and and enact all kinds of violence and ugliness upon them that's all awful and i don't think anyone with a good conscience or anyone who's thought sensibly about this for more than 5 minutes can possibly defend but I do worry. I, I worry about like things. You mentioned SERI earlier, the Socioeconomic Rights Institute, right? I mean, these guys are essentially a foreign-funded NGO. And this does concern me because these people are trying to change policy and they're trying to affect uh, the, the way that South Africa is run when South Africans – have very little to do with their mandate because their funders are all international. And some of them, to my mind, I don't think some of them are particularly interested in what ordinary South Africans want. And this is where Operation Dudula and these kinds of things come from because people are looking at this going, hang on, it doesn't seem right to me that someone is taking care of their interests, but they're not taking care of mine. And we do end up with massive amounts of dissatisfaction in communities that are already stretched to the maximum. So... Why should someone like CERI, with all of their international funding, be telling my government how to tax me?
2: So, Gareth, that's great, because actually that's, I mean, this is a criticism that is made against all of us in civil society all the time, right? That, oh, your funders are foreign, you know, you're kind of sort of agents for, I don't know, various imperialist forces. (laughs) I mean, that's not how NGOs work, right? I mean, the fact is... We are there, we, you know, we, we do work in the non-profit sphere. We rely because we're not, we're not making, we're not a commercial enterprise. We do rely on donors. And most of us, I mean, certainly, you know, reputable organizations like Siri, we take, um, you know, donations from across the board. I mean, it would be great. And there are some really fantastic South African philanthropic, philanthropic um, don- donors Landers, yeah. who give money and do so generously. But actually, it's a really limited slice. Um, and then there are, you know, international based organizations, um, donor organizations who give money and there are a large variety of them. And my sense, I mean, I don't know in detail what series, who series funders are, but I imagine that they are, you know, some of the, you know, well-known established international donor funders and the relationship works in ways There's no kind of like, oh, you know, we're having a meeting and you will do this, receive your instructions. I mean, the fact is donors come as they do, as investors do. In sort of startups, we like your ideas, we like the work that you're doing, here is your money, you have to report to us as to what you're doing, but we don't hand you a mandate as to what it is that you're required to, to well, do. I've I never mean, encountered
1: you, that in my years of work. I suppose the biggest funder there is the Open Society uh, Initiative, Open Society International, which is uh, which has clearly got a, a, a globalist bent and are into things like open borders and all the rest of it. So that that does run counter to a lot of nationalist interests in South Africa, and particularly around people like Operation Dudula and people who are more interested in, you know, if, if you are not from here and you are not complying with the law, then, frankly, we don't care about your rights. Um, and that's how they feel. I don't agree with that necessarily. But if that's true, if if open borders are an important part of why certain organizations fund certain other organizations, then I think that should be something that the people of those countries are aware of. I mean, places like China, they don't allow any I NGOs from outside. They don't allow any funding from outside. Now, we don't want to end up like that because obviously then...
0: And there's a limit even in the States to what philanthropy is, you know, what kind of and, donations... And into, Pumi, let's... Especially let's, international, but also... Let's be fair let's, be fair let's be fair like you know, it's so not always
1: philanthropy either sometimes these are it, pol- political interests and I'm not going political to
0: interest. I'm not going
1: to get but conspiratorial that, about imperial control from all over the world and all that stuff which you rightly point out Nicole is mostly nonsense but I do think there are a lot of very nefarious and dangerous competing interests out there and sometimes the ones that, I think that, that, that is have the most money when
0: Garrett, but I do think that it is disingenuous of Aaron Mudwaledi, who is a minister in our government, hmm. who has levers of power at his disposal, to then also hide behind this, oh, there's some nefarious, what oh, yeah. they've got the power. He is, in fact, what he is doing is he is scapegoating foreign, foreign nationals and also... The foreign donors of some of these organizations to hide away from the fact that he is running a, dis- a department that is dysfunctional. Yeah. it is his fault Absolutely. if his department is unable to. If his department is unable to process permits in in a particular period of time, mm-hmm. it is his fault if his department is unable to manage a and kind of. Um, look at border control. It is his fault if his department is full of corruption that individuals within his department are easily manipulated or can be bought to create documentation that for nefarious reasons. And he is unable to say we have faulted here and we are going to fix it in this manner in this amount of time. It is easier for him to say, yeah, this." An imperialistic kind
1: of yeah, sure. There's somebody over there
0: pulling the strings, and these strings are meant to make. And this is the problem with what we are seeing. But I also think it is problematic when you have individuals who are supposedly vying for us as South Africans to vote for them, to take out the current government and put them in power. And they use the exact same excuses mm-hmm. to scapegoat. on, You know, punching down, as it were. Give us your ideas of what it is that you are going to do differently. How are you going to fix this without making it somebody else's? Oh, it's their fault. It's not yep. our
1: fault. Correct. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. Nicole?
2: Yeah. And I, I have to say, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more either, Pumi, in respect of, of, of your characterization of, of that. And of course, I mean, the irony is that we know that the ANC is now opposing and seeking to to move down the levels of uh, by which it is required in terms of the new legislation to disclose its funders, right? So, so here is this thing, you know, they're, they're saying, oh, you sort of nefarious organisations funded by these skulky, shadowy forces, but actually we're sort of in Parliament going to be, you know, sort of lobbying to amend this this law that requires us to disclose our funders because we don't want to have they to that. are idiots.
0: They are idiots because they allowed that law in the first place. No, really, when that yeah. initially, when that was initially kind of like put on the books, I just thought to myself, what the fuck would I agree to this for <laughs> in the ANC? If you are the party in right. power, why would you agree to this? But because they agreed to that, Gareth and We spoke about this a couple of weeks ago. What we now have access to is we actually have access to see who are these big corporates that are keeping the ANC and the EFF and the DA kind of in largesse. And the fact that it is the same people across the board. So the same people that give money to the EFF, give money to the ANC, give money to the DA. Yes. And so it's interesting and important for us all to also understand what then is the difference between all of these people on the other side. Right? Well, and, we, and we, we know what's you happening. You know, people think that the 350-rent grant is what keeps the ANC in power, but actually it is not the 350-rent no. grant that keeps the ANC in power. It is the big businesses like the Bains down the line who create the opportunity for them to be able to capture, but also... The 66 million, this is the, I think in the past six months, this is what the IEC have have put out as monies that have been given to the various parties. I think the ANC got 66 million donations. Uh, That 66 million is what they use to run their conferences. It's what they use to run the ads. It's what they use to make the T-shirts that keep them top of mind for the people who do show up to vote.
1: Couldn't agree more. No, that's spot on. (laughs) So, so, go ahead.
2: No, no, just to to say, I mean, look, I think one of the things that you said out, Gareth, which, you know, is is the hard reality, right? I mean, sometimes we we present these things as kind of binary choices. Um, They don't necessarily, that's not how they actually present themselves, but sometimes we do have to make choices. The fact is South Africa is experiencing all sorts of enormous demands and you know, as our discussion in respect to the big revealed, it's not necessarily doing a good enough job in sort of responding to to the needs of those who are poorest and most vulnerable here in, in, in this country. And so I get that people are going to be concerned that, you know, here are these organizations um, lobbying, protecting for foreign nationals. But I think what has to be recalled is we're making this decision in respect to the Zimbabwean exemption permit. We're talking about 178,000 individuals who've been here lawfully they're a different category from those who have come into south africa foreign nationals and who are here you know illegally Mm -hmm. and undocumented in order to live here they have had to scrupulously adhere to the law we're making this decision without having taken into account any of the data right when we made the decision to give them these these visas (laughs) and these these permits it was on the basis that um, that it was in the interests of South Africa to track and record these these persons coming into South African South Africa's economy. Um, uh, that that they that you know in 2007 2008, when so many Zimbabweans fled the political crisis in Zimbabwe and Zimbabwean came into South Africa, that they were overwhelming our reception. Um, uh, you, our asylum, like, refugee sure. reception centers, um, why suddenly, you know, we, we're now saying, okay, well, you can go and apply for these other visas, when when in 2007, 2008, we took a very different decision. Um, none, there's no do- data suggesting that by expelling these 178,000 people, that that will be a net positive effect for That's South it. Africa Um, for our economy. I mean, we have no idea to what extent these people actually employ South Africans, that they contribute.
1: I'm fairly fairly sure that it would be extremely deleterious to us. I don't think it would be good for our economy because I do see these people opening up shops where no one else is prepared to open up shops, doing work that no one else is prepared to do, very often with skills and qualifications and abilities that we don't have ourselves so i don't think that uh, i'm you know i'm not i'm not on the other side of this <laughs> argument from you i think there are lots I, of I, no, lots no. of these people who are making a huge contribution to the economy
2: yeah and i think it comes back to Pumi's point right and, and certainly if you're going to make a decision and i mean the the amounts of you know kind of letters um, and messages that we're getting from from individuals so for instance You know, a young man with a young family who wrote to me, he came here, he was initially a laborer. He's now starting, he's uh, started a small business and employs several South Africans. As I said, has two children, also suffering from a chronic illness, right? He has to go back to Zimbabwe. He's not going to be able to get the medication that allows him to survive on a day-to-day basis. So it's literally a death sentence. He won't have employment uh, in Zimbabwe. There's no job waiting for him. Um, He will have to abandon his business care and it will be a literal death sentence for this particular individual. But there are so many circumstances, um, I mean, so many individuals who have just as desperate circumstances. Um, and I think for us to make a decision, as we've done, without any consultation, without any thinking, without any planning, must be, I think, frightening for all of us South Africans. Because if this group of individuals can have their lives tossed to the wind in the way that they are being by the South African government, I think it places all of us in jeopardy, and I think that that is a reason that all of us South Africans should be concerned. And again, just to say that, of course, acting to seek to protect and defend the rights of these individuals is not at the cost of also working um, and lobbying Mm -hmm. for the rights of South Africans. And there it's not a, you know, either or situation.
1: Yeah, I think that's very well put, and I agree with Pumi earlier when she said that actually so much of this would be um, solved instantly if we just had competence in cabinet and in government and in the executive branch of government. If people were just able to actually do what our already plentiful laws give them the ambit to do, if we were just applying that law rightly and fairly across the board and giving people the chance to actually be here legally to participate in the economy properly and to to pay their taxes like anyone else i don't think anyone would have the kind of grievance that they have in so many parts of south africa against these foreign nationals but we do have to sort it out because um, it's not going away anytime soon and it's probably going to boil over into violence again it has before and that should be avoided at all costs i think most south africans who um who 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 care about the the stability in the future of not only our economy, but our society, I think want people to try to wherever possible solve these problems peacefully. And and we're not going to be able to, if we don't deal with the root cause. Mm
0: -hmm. All right. Well, I think that's a, a good place to end it. It's I a,
1: think it's a good place to end it. It's I a good. It's it's a, it's a good place to end it. It's also <laughs> we're out of time, and really, Nicole, it's been, such a pl- <laughs> it's been such a pleasure to have you here. First of all, to explain some of the work that the Helen Sisman Foundation does, uh, the stuff that you you and and so many others have done at Freedom Under Law. Uh, it's terrific that there are NGOs that are more than pulling their weight in a society where so often other more important players are not pulling their weight. It's good to see that there is. Uh, a solid civil society, and uh, I, I wish you only the best going forward. I hope that many more South Africans can contribute to that in time, in resources, in money, and in attention so that um, the, the good messages get out there and the right stuff continues mm-hmm. to percolate towards Thanks. the top. Thank you for your hard work. It's good to have you on. Thanks.
2: Thanks Thank Sarah. you so much. Thanks, Pummy. It was lovely to, be, to join you. Thanks so much. It was good to see you. Thanks. We didn't do an ad for her. How do
0: people get in, it, just before you go, how do people get in touch? How do people support you? How do yes. people help? How do uh, people okay. become friends of the Susan, Helen Sussman Foundation?
2: So if you go on the website, there are tabs saying sort of contact, donate, become a friend. So go on, go on the website um, uh, particularly if you are friendly and wanting to support. Um, <laughs> if you're wanting to sort of um, beat me up because of our support for you know the Zimbabwe exemption permits. Let me assure you, I get enough of those messages. So, so, um, so by all means, we need counter messages. Counter exactly. Messages. If you want to come be a friend and support us, um, get in touch. Otherwise, I'm not sure how you get in touch with us. <laughs> no
1: otherwise, there's no way we can't help you. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Exactly. All right. Terrific stuff. Thanks, um, Pums. We will bye. see you next week. Cheers, everybody. Have an excellent Thursday. Bye bye. CliffCentral
0: dot com.